My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Hey, Dave here with Saddleback Leather. I'm in my coffin. Bob, you're killing me. I needed this report yesterday. Now I'm going to have to stay late and do it myself and miss my 20th anniversary and my daughter's wedding. Thanks a lot, Bob. What you just saw me reenact was an example of poor work-life balance. Or, should we say, work-death balance. Did you know the death rate here in Texas is 100%? Man, so I got to thinking, I gotta get ahead of this thing. So I went around looking for a coffin, couldn't find anything I liked, so I designed my own. You know, everyone's gonna need one of these sooner or later, so you might as well get it sooner. And here's the advantage. You get to live life looking at this thing all the time. For example, my pockets here. What I want is for these pockets to be filled with letters that say, hey Dave, just wanna thank you for pouring into my life, for helping me out, for being a difference in my life. Instead of, hey Dave, you existed. Hmm, or even worse, forever to have in your coffin. Hey, glad you're gone, about time. What's gonna be in the pockets in your coffin? So check this out, I got Psalm 23 up here. What are they gonna put in yours? Like a big jackass or big giant middle finger? These are things to consider. So I designed this thing with six handles so that I would remind myself to be a good enough guy that I had six people who wanted to come to my funeral to carry the thing. And then my wife wouldn't have to hire day laborers to carry it instead. So don't get me wrong here. I really love my job at Saddleback Leather. In fact, I was designed to do this. I feel like I'm really you know, created to work. But also, you know, I was, I was designed and created to, to be in relationship too, and so were you. So I want to encourage everyone to be thinking about that. What's important in life and having a good work-death balance. Because when you die, that's when life really begins, and then that whole work-life balance kicks in. Uh, you just got preached at. Well, anyway, uh, I think everyone should have a coffin. You need to go out and get yourself a coffin, put it there in your office, and then come coffin old clock, you look at there and you go, time to go home. I got family and chitlins to go hang out with and do the most important things. What we're really talking about here is time management. You know, you can get fancy phone apps, you can go to expensive seminars, but I'm a little old fashioned. And what I found is keeping a giant leather coffin in my office works for me. And check this out. Coffin table.
death balance. I was talking with my buddy Bill uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were discussing this very issue. We were talking about the challenges of balancing all of life. And he just got a promotion at work at Intel, and along with the promotion comes more responsibility, more pay, and a challenge of how do you balance this out. And uh, we were talking about that in his life. I was sharing in my life with, uh, you know, future going forward with Conservative Baptist Northwest and coaching pastors in the Northwest and how are we going to make all this work? And he reminded me of a conversation we'd had years ago about uh, one of the pastors who's now pastoring one of the largest churches in America. When they first began this upstart church, pouring everything into it, this pastor went to his wife. They had little kids at the time and said, honey... At this season of our marriage, at this season of our family, what is the best way? How can I serve you? And she looked at him and said, well, you could be home every day at four (laughs) o'clock. That's when I'm done. (laughs) I have no more energy left. And he looked at her and, you know, all the thoughts were going on in his head. Four o'clock. I mean, everybody else works till five or six or longer. And then there's so much. And if you've ever started a business or you've launched a new endeavor, you know it takes incredible time and energy to do this. But he looked at his wife and said, okay. And he made a decision to be home at 4 o'clock. He told everybody uh, he was starting the church with and eventually everybody on staff. And ultimately, you know, as the years went by, the seasons of life changed and and so time changed. But he looked back and he says, that was one of the most significant things I did for my wife because I put her first, then my children first. And I was able to say no because work is, is not something we can easily say no to especially when you love your job, when you're, you're passionate about it. I, I do as a pastor. I love this. I love meeting with people. I love coaching people. I love being a part of praying and, and you know, encouraging people on the journey of following Jesus Christ. Well, how do you turn that off? How do you say no? How do you go home? And it's easy to get imbalanced in life. And you couple that with the fact that in our modern culture, in our current culture, we're so wired for work that we think our work is our identity, right? Because one of the first questions we ask someone when we meet them is, well, what do you do? You know, what is your title? What is your job? What is your identity? And, uh, you know, men and women, we can get so confused in this. And it's something that when all is said and done, we are there to work and there's a part of worship to that and God created us to work. But if we get caught up into that as an identity, then all of a sudden we forget who we really are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we forget to turn off. We forget to have Sabbath. We forget to unplug. We forget to actually have enjoyment with God and with the family that he's given us and our friends. And so, you know, that's something that's difficult for us because we are not the kind of people as a culture that stop and slow down. We're workaholics. And it's funny because, you know, many, many, many decades ago in the 60s, they said, you know, when finally people have all these technologies, they'll be able to work a 30-hour or a 20-hour work week. Now we work 80-hour work weeks with all the technology, right? And these tools actually make us slaves to work. And so it's really tough for us to stop and pull back. And we're in this series on Ecclesiastes, and Solomon, the guy who wrote it, the author, he's talking about all these subjects as it relates to our relationship with God. He's a guy that certainly blew it in his life as he pursued work, he pursued achievements and pleasure and security, wealth, all those things. And so he looks back and he writes with insight for you and for me. And today we're going to see a passage of scripture in chapter 3 and 4 where his words are about work, but they're in particular about a part of work that is challenging for us. 
And it is in three areas, in, in areas of, you know, oppression, injustices, and rivalries, and how we now as people who live under the sun in this world today can either get off focus, get bent out of shape, or we can actually learn to discover what it's like to have a good balance in the middle of a lot of pain and suffering. And so if you have your Bible, you could turn to Ecclesiastes. We're going to jump into this. And the tension that we're going to see is how do we live in a world that even though we pour all of our life into work and our energy into that, really it's not going to work out the way we want. It's never going to be as we desire it. So when is enough enough really is the question that we're going to ask. When can we say, I'm drawing a line and that's it? My wife and I, when we were first, you know, dating to the point of, you know, getting married and getting serious about it, I had a pretty good conversation with her. We talked a lot about this as my fear was that, um, that I would put so much of my identity into what I was doing, into what I was having or desiring that I would forget that I was really living for God. And I, I, think, I think we all face that. And so we decided to draw a line. And we said, you know, we'll, we'll one day have kids and we'll one day, you know, do things and everything. But we're not going to do these things. That even before we were married, we said, here's a line. And we never want to cross that line. Because we know that possessions, we know that work, we know that money, we, we know that pleasures are so insidious. They can take over our lives and they can distort reality. And we give so much to that. And if if we wake up one day and we pursued that path, we've, it's possible to lose everything, really, because that's our American work ethic. That's what we're about as people of this culture, is to really be after stuff. And if we're not careful, the stuff of this earth will really compete with the treasures of heaven. Now, in the midst of what Solomon's talking about, we're going to look at uh, three distinct passages as we walk through chapter 3 uh, and, and into chapter 4. We're going to look at these tensions, and the first tension is just basically this idea of injustice. How do we deal with the injustices of the world? As we work, as we go along, how do we deal with it? So Solomon begins with these words. He says, I also noticed that under the sun there is evil in the courtroom. Now, again, if you've been with us, Shane preached last week, did an awesome job. Uh, you know, the, the weeks before that, I was kind of introducing all this. Solomon is an observer, and he's observing from his life, but he's also observing as he was living his life and what he saw. And he's taking notes for you and for me, and he's writing it all down, as it were. And so he's the observer of it. He's going to various places. And for a moment, he's going in the courtroom. Then he's going to go into the workplace. Um, but he's asking this question, you know, I went into the courtroom, and I noticed something about the courtroom. I noticed that under the sun, under the sun is this, uh, this metaphor for the life we live here on the earth, there is evil in the courtroom. Now, you'd think as the big boss, because Solomon's the big boss, he's the king, that he would have the ability to eradicate all injustice in the courtroom. But he's smart at that. He knows the human heart is evil at its core. And he knows that people can be swayed with money and power and such. And so he says... Even the courts of law are corrupt. He says, so I said to myself, in due season, God will judge everyone, both good and bad, for all their deeds. So he's basically saying we don't live in a just world. Even the courts that are supposed to met out justice, they're corrupted. Now, um, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine who's a, a retired judge now, and he's, he's doing some work on the bench, but for the most part, he had a long, glorious career, that it's hard to stay pure in that line of work because there's so much influence, political influence, uh, influences of people that want to jockey for position. And um, maybe in our culture, for the most part, we don't 
worry about the courtroom being corrupted by dollars, but we, we get it corrupted by personas. We get it corrupted by just this desire for power. In other places of the world, it's definitely run by the cartels of the world, and we know that uh, the court, whoever has the most money can you know, do whatever they want. But what he's dealing with is this issue of injustice in general. If you notice on our wall here, we have Micah 6, 8, a key passage for us to summarize, that God has called us to look at our lives and to be about these three things. First of all, justice, about doing justice. Justice means righteousness, what is right in the world today, that we are to be about justice. We are to be about mercy. We're to do justice. We're to love mercy, and we're to walk humbly with our God. And so you and me, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should care passionately about justice issues. We should be a part of justice issues. Um, we, we, should, we should really pray about it. We should give our money to it. We should participate personally in issues of justice because God is a God of justice. And when you and I allow injustices around us without any conversation about it, with any pushback, with any criticism or critique, critique then we're just as much to blame as anybody else. But if we take a stand for the injustices in our culture today, then we're taking a stand with God because God doesn't want injustice. And we see it all around us, whether it's racial injustice, you know, whether it's just some of the, the challenges that we have in our culture and community. I mean, you know, it's political injustice. There's so much. We live in a very crazy world right now. Um, if you don't get mad at things that God gets mad at, then I don't know where your heart is because God gets angry at injustice. It's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New Testament. God is saying that my people can't just come to church or to the temple to offer sacrifices and allow all the injustices, that we have to be about the issue of justice. And that may be about human trafficking, sex slavery. I mean, it may be about um, poverty issues, maybe about racial issues. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what community you're living in. Uh, it, but, but you have issues and you have eyes that can see injustices all around. It might be at work. Solomon says in the courtroom, let's take a look at this. His conclusion is interesting. He says, when all is said and done, God is going to ultimately be the judge. Which sounds great until you think, yeah, but that's a long time from now. <laughs> I mean, I want justice now, right? I mean, don't you want that? Wouldn't it be great if God meted out justice, you know, in the moment? Wouldn't it be fun? I mean, I think about this as I drive along and somebody cuts me off. I, I, would, I would love a just world where, you know, that jerk's car blows up, you know what I mean? Just complete, I, I prayed for that at times. I have in, in the sinfulness of my flesh. It's like, God, give him a flat tire and show him why that was rude to do that, you know? Of course, I want mercy on my side because I'm late for work and I'm doing stuff for you, God, so cover me. Um, you know, that's how it works, of course. But, uh, you know, wouldn't it be cool if you, uh, it, it, you know, if somebody lied to you, uh, the Pinocchio nose would immediately grow. It's like, wow, that, you, you wouldn't lie, right? Or if you envied someone, um, you know, then your hair would fall out, you know? Some of you, are, you're already there, you know? Um, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you gossiped about someone, your tongue turned green. It's like, oh, what have you been eating? A candy? Green candy, uh, sour patch kids. No, 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 no. No, I've been envying. Or let's just say that um, you bought too much stuff, you know, then, then all your clothes, you know, in, in your closet would just start corrupting, right? Or, or you, you ate too much food, you go to the closet, all, all your, all, you know, or the, the cupboard there or in the refrigerator, everything molds instantly. Wouldn't it be great if immediately after our sin, we faced some judgment, right? Well, then that would not be great, right? It would not be great at all. Now, we like to think about that in our relationship with others, but the truth is, we, we, it wouldn't be a great world. In fact, if God said today, we got a big announcement in the sky, 
that as of midnight, I'm going to eradicate all sin on the earth, all injustices on the earth. How many of us would be here at 1201? And if you raise your hand, you'd go first because you're a liar, you know? <laughs> right. That, it's in our hearts. Now, it may not be as bad as that other person, right? Come on. But it's in our hearts. Every one of us have sinned, the Bible says. Every one of us are broken. Every one of us are dysfunctional and we're bent. Every one of us struggle to match. We don't even match up to our own goals for ourselves, our own expectations, right? Hardly God's. God says what? We've all fallen short of his perfect standard. We've all sinned. We've missed the mark. And yet, God's pretty clear one day he's going to judge all that. He says here, in due season, God will judge everyone. I I wish the season would happen faster in some scenarios, but but I'm glad it doesn't happen fast in my scenario, right? The Bible says clearly, though, that God will judge everything, everybody, the good and the bad. And you and I live in a world of injustices, and, and, and maybe the biggest, in fact, I would say absolutely the biggest injustice is the fact that God himself came down to the earth, walked this earth as Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and he was nailed to a cross for our sin. You want to know the biggest injustice? It's that right there. The cross is the biggest injustice because he went to the cross not for his sins. He didn't have any, but for your sins and my sins. That Jesus would willingly take the punishment that you and I deserve, our eternal punishment. Man, that's, in, that's not just at all. That's not fair, right? But I'm glad God's not fair in that sense. I'm glad God so loved us that he gave his son Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so now you and I, we don't, we don't have to fear the ultimate punishment of God. So I read the Bible every year, and I'm in the book of Leviticus now. I just finished chapter 7 this morning, and oh, I, I, I really don't enjoy Leviticus. There's so much blood. I'm kind of, you know, squeamish about that. But can you imagine if we still lived under that Old Testament law? I mean, you'd be bringing in your animals, your sheep, and your goats, and your doves, and, and your ox, or whatever. And we'd have a you know, couple songs. We'd have a sermon. And then afterwards, we'd just slaughter all the animals. And I'm the priest, and would pour it on and burn it and everything. And be, Man, that would be messy. That'd be, oh, that'd be horrible, Right? The, the reek of death. Well, that's what Jesus did for you and for me. He died for us. He paid the penalty. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness or covering of sin. And so Jesus came and shed his own blood. He gave his own life for you and for me. And so in due time, in due season, God will judge. Now, here's the thing. Just because Jesus died to pay for our sin doesn't mean we've received that personally. Doesn't mean that it's going to be credited to our account. Because that only happens when we come to him in faith. Uh, As, you know, the apostle Paul stated so beautifully, he says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, means he's, he's he's our boss. If we confess, if we say the words, agree that he's our Lord, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, means if he's our savior, that he went to the cross to die for our sins, and we take that personally, we believe in that, trust in it, receive it, then we're saved. But if you don't do that, going to church isn't gonna help you. It might actually hurt you, because you'll think going to church is enough. Being a good person is not gonna help you. 
It will hurt you because you'll think you're good enough. And you're certainly better than the person next to you. Of course you are, right? In your own eyes, in my own eyes, I'm better than all of you, right? Well, I obviously wouldn't say it that way, you know, because some of you are pretty nice. Others, not so sure. Um, You know, but we all have this system of grading. And God's like, forget that. My system of grading is perfection and none of you match up. If we try to figure it out on our own, we're going to lose. And we will pay for our sins for eternity. Because what Jesus did on the cross doesn't automatically apply to us. We have to receive it by faith. We have to put our faith in, in what God has done through Christ. Because I, I, would, I would just hate, I, I was talking to the pastors and the missionaries and evangelists in Cuba, and we were talking about the future and the end times and what God's going to do and this eternal lake of fire. That was created for Satan and his angels. And the fact that as Revelation concludes, the end of the Bible concludes, the very end of the book, God wins, but a lot of people are going to lose because they reject God to the very end. It's like, man, that's not a pretty picture. I don't want anybody. I don't want anybody to be separated from God. God doesn't want anybody to be separated from him. And so he offers an opportunity for us to receive forgiveness. But he's not going to force it on us. He's going to invite us to that. And so in due season, God will judge everybody, the, the evil, the good, the bad, what I mean. He's going to take care of everybody for their deeds. One day, and this is the picture, the books will be opened, and everything we've ever done or said or thought will be exposed to God. I mean, it's already exposed to him. But one day, the finality, the, the end of the book, the last chapter will be written. And don't wait till then, my friends, because then it's too late to receive his forgiveness and love. And, and we shouldn't follow him out of fear. We should follow him out of gratitude and just tremendous love because he loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. Um, uh, but up to that point, we're, we're going to face injustice in the world. And God's going to allow it because he's going to even work through the sinfulness of our broken world and our culture. And so he, he addresses this issue and there's evil in the courtroom. But the fact is, is that the world is messed up and God is still working on it. He goes on to talk about this. Solomon says, I also thought about the human condition, how God proves to people that they're like animals. For people and animals share the same fate. Both breathe and both must die. Uh, Now, it's fascinating what he says here. I'll make a comment in a bit. People have no real advantage over the animals. How meaningless. Both go to the same place. They came from dust and they returned to dust. For who can prove that the human spirit goes up and the spirit of animals goes down into the earth? So in other words, all dogs don't go to heaven. So I saw, he says, that there's nothing better for people than to be happy in their work. This is a conclusion. We'll talk about the other thing in a minute. This is his conclusion. When it comes to work, really just enjoy it. Be happy in your work. That's our lot in life. That's our gain. That is what's left over at the end, our profit. And no one can bring us back to see what happens after we die. Now what's fascinating about this is the Bible was revealed... We're going to say section by section, piece by piece. God's truth was unveiled parts at a time. If you open up Genesis chapter 1, you don't see everything. You see just the beginning. Genesis chapter, Genesis 3, you see this, this, this Satan. You see this serpent of old. You see sin coming in. And as you continue through the Bible, you see theologies developing and growing. And so in the Old Testament... Uh, there are many parts of the Bible that we hold dear, the New Testament, uh, that are not there. 
meaning there's not much of a developed view of the afterlife in the Old Testament. Uh, there's this idea of Sheol or the grave, but it's not until you get to Jesus that you see there's a delineation between the good and the bad when it comes to that. You see that Jesus talks about uh, pleasure and punishment, that Jesus says there's heaven and hell, and he's very descriptive of that. And then you continue on through Paul's writings and Peter and on, John, to the end of Revelation, you see that, man, this is really clear that everybody will be judged one day. Those of us who follow Christ, who've received his forgiveness, we're judged in the, in the judgment of rewards, but people who've rejected him are judged by their deeds, and so they will go away into eternal punishment. So what Solomon is saying here was his understanding of that, is that there, who knows if there's an afterlife? But because revelation is progressive, we now know there is an afterlife. The Bible's not contradicting itself. It's just revelation was slowly pulled. The curtain was pulled back on it piece by piece. And so for him, he's like, hey, when I look around at the world and I see all this, the only thing I can say is enjoy life because who knows if, if, you, you know, if there's anything after this go around, right? Now, you and I know there is something after this go around because Jesus shared a lot about that and that you and I can invest in eternity, a treasure in heaven, versus everything in this world. That we could focus on the stuff of heaven, not just the stuff of the earth. And so this is what he talks about when it comes to injustices. Now let's talk about oppression for just a bit. Oppression, he says, I mean, this, this gets pretty discouraging. He says, again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. There's the phrase again, in this existence that you and I, at this place, this is where we walk. I saw the tears of the oppressed, with no one to comfort them. Have you ever been to a place like that? Um, have you ever hung out with people that are oppressed, that there's incredible injustice, that there's an overwhelming oppression? Israel and I had that this last week. It's actually kind of hard to re-enter. It's, it's tough. I mean, I, you know, I'd go to Burundi or go to Congo or Rwanda or whatever, and you see all that stuff, and, and you come back, and you know, everybody's driving their nice cars and living in their nice homes. It's hard to adjust. It's a culture shock. But this last week is hardest that I've ever experienced because there's incredible poverty, there's incredible fear, but there's a faith in the midst of all of it and there's this simple belief that God is gonna be there in the midst of all of it. And I come home and we have so much, I have so much, and we don't even consider that. And he says, you know, here, he says, you ever been hanging out with people that are just crying because they're oppressed, that they don't receive justice? No one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. So I concluded that the dead are better off than the living, but most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born. For they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. I do not know, I do not know how people can get to the point where they choose pleasure and profit, where, where they choose their life over the life of others. But it happens all the time, and, and it, it's happening in Cuba right now where people are struggling, people are starving because of an evil, corrupt government. It's happening in Venezuela right now. You saw those pictures of the foreign aid that was given, that was rejected because of pride in the form of leadership? I, I don't know how that leader lives and sleeps knowing that their people are starving and dying. Bring it into our culture. All around us, there's hurt and there's pain. There's never enough, right? Some of you are struggling because there's not enough money to make it. There's not enough relationship to walk this earth this, this season, right? You're alone. There, there's so much by way of oppression. And as followers of Jesus, again, you and I are supposed to be about working toward, you know, peace, working toward love, working toward acceptance, 
working toward getting to the heart of the person. And Solomon is writing here and he says, when I look at the world, man, I see injustice, I see oppression, and he says, I, I see rivalry. He goes on, and this is the last that we'll see today in chapter four, he says, then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. They're keeping up with the Kardashians, right? You know, they're keeping up with the Joneses. I don't know who the Joneses are, but man, they must have more stuff than me and I want it because I deserve it because I'm an American, right? Well, he says, this is how we live our life. This too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. This is the, sto- this is the story. We grasp and it's gone, right? I mean, everything in our culture, everything, uh, you know, on, on movies and TV and, and what we read and what we see, what we listen to, it's everywhere in sports. It's everywhere. That if we had that, if we owned that, if we lived there, we, we would be something. And yet they're not. They're dying. People are committing suicide. It's, it's just unbelievable to think that we envy their life and they get there and they're not happy because we believe the lie like they believe the lie. And he says, when I just kind of evaluate the whole thing, I say it this way, and this is really cool. Check this out. He says, fools, which is a tough word here. Jesus says, be careful about using that word. Jesus uses it, but it, be cautious. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. So I, I don't know if you ever get tired of running the rat race when you look in the mirror and you go, I don't even want to be a rat. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't want to prop my a ladder against the wrong wall and climb to the top of it and realize I've wasted my life. I don't want to do that. Solomon urges you and me in the midst of wickedness, in the midst of injustice and oppression and rivalry, that there is a way to have peace in this world with, with our idea of, of work. And it has to do with our hands. <coughs> he says, first of all, fools fold their idle hands. This is the first option. It's an interesting expression because we don't, use the words folded hands a lot. Solomon wrote another book called Proverbs, and twice he uses this expression. And one of them, he says this, a little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Folding of the hands means a resignation that it's not my responsibility. So basically, a person with folded hands says, I want somebody else to work for me. I want somebody else to provide for me. Somebody else is supposed to do that, and I don't want to do it. He says, then a little more poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. People who have folded hands can't work because they've decided to fold their hands and rest. And so that's one option, is just to kind of give up and let somebody else care for you and provide for you. A second option is to go after two handfuls. Now, two handfuls means, well, here, how about this? Halloween. And you go to the door and you knock on the door, you're a little kid dressed up in Superman or whatever, and you know, Wonder Woman, whatever it might be, and Captain Marvel, and you, you show up and there's this big bowl of candy. And what do you do, right? I'll just have one. It's like, no, come on. None of us is want one. We go after it with two handfuls. We grab everything, and as we pull our hands out, candy falls. But that's okay, because <coughs> we put it in our bag, right? We're like, I got this much. Two handfuls means we're grabbing onto everything we can, clutching it. But look what he says. It's, it's like chasing the wind. He says, you know, if you go after everything and you think you can hold on to it all, when you look at your hands, you have nothing but air. Grabbing onto everything with two handfuls means you're going to end up with nothing. It's a wasted life. But then the final, final option for you and for me, the third option is this, is to have one handful, but one handful with quietness. In other words, work with one hand, 
Put everything you can into that one hand. Do that job, but rest with the other. Learn to say no. Learn to draw a line. Learn to have a Sabbath. Learn to say, you know what? I'm going to put all my effort into this for a season, but then I'm going to go home. I'm going to clock out and be with my family or be with my friends. I'm going to go care for the other people that don't have, and I'm going to provide for them one handful. And I'm going to do everything I can and enjoy what God's given me in my lot in life. That's wonderful. And I'm going to work with happiness. But when all is said and done, work is not my life. My life consists of more than that. In fact, that's what Jesus talks about. Jesus is uh, at this encounter with these, this guy who's arguing about his brother and this estate and everything. It's kind of fun. It's in Luke chapter 12. And he starts and then he concludes with these verses. First of all, in the encounter, Jesus uh, says this. He says, a person's life, if you could go to the slide there, uh, beware, guard against every kind of greed. A life is not measured by how much you own. Uh, if, you, if you look at the pile of your stuff, that's not your life. So be cautious, be, be on guard against greed, because greed will tell you that the more stuff I have, the more I own, the more I have, the more I am, and I'll have more life if I have more stuff. Jesus says, be really careful. That's self-deception to think that more equals more, because more actually equals more responsibility, more everything. It actually equals less. And so be content with what you have is what Jesus is saying. And then he wraps up after telling a story about a guy who had so much and then had more and built these big stores for it, I mean, this barns for it. And then he died that night, and it was, it was given to whoever took it at that point. He says this. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. Jesus says that anybody that tries to work with both handfuls and have everything is ultimately a fool. Because at the end of your life, that's all you're going to have is your stuff. And Jesus said, and that's a hard word. Jesus uses it. He warns us against using that word. And he says, a person is a fool to have the greatest life on earth and yet not think about the next life. When we truly begin to live life, when that work-death balance is flipped over to the next season. Now, I don't know about you. Some of you are in a situation where you need to work. I mean, you know, your, your hands are folded, as it were. And you need to do something. You need to find God's calling for your life. You need to find the passion of that. But not to go to the other end of the spectrum where you're grabbing it with both handfuls because that's your identity and that's your purpose because there's more to life than work. There's more to life than possessions and money. Um, but in the middle of where it's like, I'm going to work, I'm going to do what I do, I'm going to enjoy doing it, because that's who God's made me to be and to be a part of, but I'm going to say no, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to enjoy the rest of my life. I'm going to have Sabbath, I'm going to have friendships, I'm going to have family time, I'm going to do that. And do that because that's the blessing that comes back from the work that God has given us, because ultimately, God is the judge. Ultimately, he's the one that knows all of our hearts, and ultimately, he's the one that's going to say to those of us who have fallen at the feet of the cross, at the foot of the cross, and we've received our forgiveness through Christ, well done, good and faithful servant. You've done really well for me. I'm pleased with you, with what you've done, with what I've given you. Come and enjoy your master's happiness because you are faithful in the few things. I'm going to make you ruler over much. I want to hear those words. I want my work in the kingdom of God to be more important than my work in the kingdom of this world because the kingdom of this world is passing away, but the kingdom of God is eternal. Would you pray with me? Father God, I, I want to thank you. We've got such a 
variety of people here today, uh, some who are struggling to make ends meet, some who are living under the tension of the fear of not having enough, and, and some who have so much that they don't even see it. Maybe they're not thankful, appreciative of it, or desiring more, somewhere in between, Lord. Um, you know, moving our hearts to reveal the truth about that and more than, more than that, Lord, reveal the truth about the fact that you will one day judge the good and the bad. All accounts will be settled. Father, why you love us so much, it's beyond me. Um, why you look into our hearts and you see a son or daughter that is hurting and broken and lost and give your son for us, I, I, don't, I don't get that. But you do, you love us with that fierce intensity that you sacrificed your own son. Father, why would we say no to that? Why would we push back a gift like that? Father, today I pray that people would receive the gift, that you would open their hearts, their minds, their spirits to see the truth of their lives and how they've fallen short of your glorious standard and then come running to you and receive your forgiveness, your grace and mercy. And then for those of us who have uh, received that, Father, that we would go out after strays and stragglers and the lost and the prodigal sons and daughters and just compel them to know true life in Jesus. Father, we love you and we thank you for the very privilege of all the freedoms that we have in this country. May we never take it for granted and may we always have a heart for those that are hurting and broken. May we fight for them and go after them with fierce, intense love. We pray in your name, amen.